Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are some seats up front in the, over there if people want them. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is ReSound. Um, can everybody hear me okay at the back? Louder? Like this. How's this? Okay. Okay. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, this is The Past Isn't Past, a session about making historical documentaries ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio talk we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I think a lot of us are trying to understand and explain how we arrived at this time culturally and socially and politically. Just news, just the form of traditional news felt insufficient for the moment. That the stories were just kind of washing over us. They didn't explore things in enough depth. That, that there's just a, a kind of a problem with just dwelling in the world of, of straight news. Sometimes on ReSound, we like to tell you exactly how our favorite story, show, or podcast is made. That's what happens at the Third Coast Conference every year. Hundreds of audio journalists and producers from all over the world take over a Chicago hotel, holding up for three days to share tips, deconstruct their craft, and communally listen to wonderful work. At the center of the conference are sessions on everything from sound design to fact-checking. Today, we give you a free entry pass. Come on in, grab a seat, and hear how two of today's top podcasts cook up their stories. We'll start at one of the biggest shops, the New York Times. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. When the New York Times got into the podcast business in 2017, they hired Lisa Tobin, a public radio veteran, as executive producer. Lisa and her team went in thinking they would make one type of podcast and came out with something completely different. The form that they inadvertently invented was The Daily, a 20-minute deep dive into the news that applies documentary story structure to traditional journalism. They must be doing something right because The Daily shot right to the top of the podcast charts. At the 2017 Third Coast Conference, Lisa Tobin and the show's host, Michael Barbaro, discussed what they've learned from the first nine months of making The Daily. Here's their session, Bringing Together Narrative and News. Thank you. Hello. Um, 
So when I started the Times, uh, it was about three months out from the election exactly when I came in, August of 2016. And I actually imagined that we would be largely a narrative operation. The thing that seemed most exciting to me about coming into the Times was the stories that were there, the, the sorts of stories that we as audio journalists and storytellers and producers are constantly searching for. The place was just filled with them, more than we could possibly know what to do with. And it seemed like this was what the Times had to offer, was we could just take our pick of the best of the best stories at the New York Times and spend months bringing them to life as these beautiful, highly produced narrative series. But then, two men entered my life. Uh, this man to the, to the right, and our new president-elect. And I would say that nothing clarifies a mission like the 2016 election, because essentially overnight, the idea of spending eight months producing a series about Venezuela or whatever it might be seemed a little bit absurd to be in this institution and be focused in that way. And so not only did it feel that, there was, that the news had such a significance and so much that needed to be explored, I think it was sort of an existential moment for us in the media where it felt as if it wasn't perhaps being explored as thoroughly as need be. I think Michael could speak to that as a journalist who had been at the Times for 11 years and who covered the campaign. We had this intense feeling that we needed to be covering things differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the form of news had, in a sense, failed us. And I was a political reporter at the Times covering a lot of the major debates and primary nights and events. And as Lisa and I were begin to conceive of what the future of an audio project might be after the campaign, we talked about how just news, just the form of traditional news, felt insufficient for the moment. That the stories were just kind of washing over us. They didn't explore things in enough, in enough depth. That, that there's just a, a kind of a problem with just dwelling in the world of, of straight news. And so that's actually that's, that's where the, the, the idea and the, um, the push for us, the motivation behind the idea of narrative daily news came from. A team of people who came into the Times excited about doing narrative audio who hadn't been particularly interested in making daily news suddenly found ourselves in this particular newsroom at this particular moment. And the news felt too big to ignore, and we felt like we needed to do something differently. So that all sounds great, right? Um, we're a team on a mission in a place where there's lots to be done. The problem is that there are 1,300 journalists in that newsroom, but not one of them is an audio storyteller. So how do you make a daily news show in narrative form, whatever that means, and how do you do it with 1,300 journalists who don't know how to do audio? And the lessons learned in figuring that out, I think sort of somewhat by accident, led to something of a new form that we are calling narrative news. The way that we're talking about it is applying the principles of the narrative form with its pacing, its suspense, character development, the moral stakes, and the exploration of ideas to the news of the day. Obviously, there's a spectrum of news to narrative, and that depends on the story that, we're, that you're taking on and the news of the day, but always applying in some way the principles of narrative. So to start, I'm just going to play an example that I think is the, sort of the most simplistic version of what that means to apply narrative to a straight-ahead news story, um, and we'll go from there. Hey. Hey. Sorry, so I got the folks here at Kinko's. Let me use the phone. How did you do that? Hey. I told them I needed to call the office. <laughs> but the problem is I got my laptop on the other side of Kinko's here. I'm afraid some Russian spy is going to take it, so i got to keep my eyes on it. 
Michael Schmidt called us from the only landline he could find. So, Mike, what did you find? So, Comey gets fired on Tuesday. I go in the office 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We're just trying to figure out what the heck happened and mm-hmm. start making some calls early. And, you know, folks who knew Comey are up and they're all spun up, obviously, about what happened. And mm-hmm. they, we're just trying to figure out what happened here. Why, why did this happen? Do they know why this happened? And they say, this guy says, well, there's this dinner. I said, what do you mean there's this dinner? He said, there's this dinner that Comey had at the White House with Trump. And I said, well, what was it? Well, I don't know everything about it. Well, it starts getting a little squirrely. I said, well, you got to tell me more. you got to tell me more. And basically throughout the rest of the day, what I figure out is that seven days after Trump was sworn in, Comey gets summoned to the White House by Trump for dinner, one-on-one dinner. They start chit-chatting, talking, you know, crowd sizes, election stuff. No one's in the room, no aides, only servers. Trump turns to Comey and says, do I have your loyalty? Mm-hmm. And Comey says, you have my honesty. So this is just a phone call, right? This is just a phone call between Michael and this investigative reporter, Mike Schmidt, who's just gotten this huge scoop. But the front page story at the Times that day, of course, says... James Comey asked by President Trump for Pledge of Loyalty. That is the headline, the inverted pyramid. That's where it starts in the traditional, you know, this is the definition of a breaking news story. But that is not what you're hearing from Mike Schmidt, right? You have Mike Schmidt on the phone, and we have characters. Mike Schmidt immediately establishes himself as a character on the phone. <laughs> um, he's got some guy at Kinko's is this sort of unseen character in the room who's, who's allowed him to use the phone. We've got two men in a room together. There's a wait staff. There's a sense of mystery. There's a sense of tension. And it's, it's just a phone call. I think what we, what we found is an unscripted form of narrative. We've stumbled on that by accident, essentially, by being in this place where we're not going to script with, with reporters. We don't have reporters who can script. And so we have to do a ton of upfront thinking and planning to get a narrative out of something that at the end of the day is unscripted and that you can turn around in a day because at the, it's, a, it's a daily news show. And then that goes all the way on the spectrum of news to narrative to how do you essentially turn around something that resembles a documentary in a day or two. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the conversation between Michael and somebody else is essentially like the building block of the show, I would say. That's the spine, the DNA. Every single show has a conversation at its heart. And as I said, we don't have the luxury of figuring out the story. Um, we don't have the time, uh, as you do in a scripted narrative, to say, okay, I think I know what I'm after. I'm going to go out in the field. I'm going to get my tape, and then I'm going to come back and figure out what my story is, and then I'm going to write it. So that upfront work, the thinking that goes into what you're going to get out of the conversation before you go into the conversation is ultimately the most important part of the process for us. And so we're going to just walk through a couple examples of a couple days in the in news over the last few months since the show started and talk about what was going on in the news, what was going on in the world, and why did we do things the way we did on those particular days. In early October, there was a mass shooting in Las Vegas that killed 58 people. And we're in the room the morning after the shooting, and we're talking. And the question that we arrived at is, why is there always talk about gun control after shootings, but nothing ever changes? Why are we having the same conversation over and over and over again? Okay, so that's a question, but we, we certainly don't have the answer to that, right? But we know that that's what we're interested in. So that's where we're starting. We're following our genuine interest and frustrations in the room. And a reminder is, you know, 
that by the time we arrive at that question, it's probably 11.30 a.m., and we have to turn around a show tomorrow. That's a pretty big question to ask in a daily show. So then we look in the archives, and we figure out who we have in our universe at the New York Times who might be able to help us answer that question. We have this question, and we have this idea that Robert Draper, a writer for the magazine, but who's written this story four years ago, probably after another horrific mass shooting, um, may have an answer in the form of the NRA. So he's written this story called Inside the Power of the NRA. And we're thinking it seems like what we're talking about here is some effort on the part of the NRA after these shootings that sort of ensures that nothing changes, even though there's all this talk of gun control. So what we do next is we get on the phone with Robert Draper, because you can read the story, but it's a lot different than having a conversation with a person who has a bunch of knowledge in their head and who knows what's actually interested. Basically, we present to him what we're interested in. And, and what he tells us is far different than what he put in his story. And so we're having this conversation with him, and he says, oh, yeah, the NRA has a playbook. Every single time there's a shooting, they kick into action with a ve- in a very clear way. And so he, I'm going to get a little out of order and play what, this is essentially what he told us on the phone, which ends up showing up in the show. And this clip starts right after the Columbine shooting. Students still working out with their weight belts on, but uh, see a lot of tears. Perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge and we could prevent anything like this from happening again. The first thing they do is a seemingly nothing, which is to remain silent. Our words and our behavior will be scrutinized more than ever this morning. Those who are hostile towards us will lie in wait to seize on a soundbite out of context, ever searching for an embarrassing moment to ridicule us. Knowing that any statement is uh, probably not going to do any good, could, in fact, do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. What they will be doing instead during that period is checking to see what the political headwinds are, hearing whatever feedback they may be getting from, say, Republican leaders. If they begin to say to them, for example, this is going to be tough for us to just stay silent on, we may actually have to consider some legislation. Then the NRA begins to go into action, but it does so quietly at first. Its first step is to mount a membership drive, to send out newsletters saying your Second Amendment rights are under attack yet again by a disingenuous Congress that wants to take away your firearms. Never fight if you can avoid it. But when you must fight, don't lose. And when nothing less than freedom is at stake, we fight. So he goes on and on like this, and he, he you know, it, it, it leads to this realization, essentially, that there's all this pressure that gets, that gets put on congressmen and women, and they're just not willing to, to deal with that pressure, and they back down immediately. Whatever calls for gun control, um, they, you, you've heard, they sort of quietly fade away, and there we are again until the next mass shooting, next round. And so we, we get off our conversation with Robert on the phone. And we don't put the playbook at the top, right? That's, that's the thing that becomes really interesting to us and starts to answer the question. But that is, that is we're going to go on a journey before we get there. And so what else do you need to know in order to understand the power of that? Well, you need to know that the NRA started as a hunting club, that it was, that it was in the 60s that it turns into a lobbying group, actually in response to um, initial gun control legislation that comes out of this wave of civil unrest, the protests in the 60s, some high-profile assassinations. There's a gun control act that uh, Johnson puts into place, 
And in response to that, the NRA basically turns itself from a hunting club into a lobbying group, power builds, and then we come to these mass shootings, and that's when the playbook kicks into action. And then the thing that really blows our mind is where Robert goes next, which is we've learned this, this, we've learned this fact about the playbook. We've learned of its existence. And then Michael has the natural next question. So to go back to the 1960s and bring this mm-hmm. full circle – an organization that became politicized in the first place in response to the assassinations of these giant figures like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy solidified power in response to these modern mass shootings. Yes, the NRA as we know it today really came into being as a direct result of violence in America and legislators' attempts Hmm. to do something about that violence. Before then, the NRA was a quiet, not-so-large organization mainly devoted to hunting. The NRA as we know it today is an NRA that was born out of the violence, gun violence in America. Mass shootings actually make the NRA stronger. And that's not, a, that's not something we knew going into that conversation with Robert. We knew what we wanted to find out. We knew, we knew the question we had. And Robert provided not just something of an answer, but a, a completely unexpected new idea for us and an answer that felt ultimately very satisfying to the question of, you know, why is there this sense that things are going to change and then they don't? And Robert had a, had a real answer to that question. So that was segment one that day, but we had one other question that we were all talking about in that room, and that was, what's it like to be a gun store owner who sells a gun to someone who uses it in a mass shooting? We all had this question of, like, why does anyone buy a gun like that for anything other than this? When we're talking about these machine guns, like, what is we, a genuine curiosity that we wanted to pose to somebody who actually knows the answer in a really sophisticated way would be a gun store owner. They're going to be able to directly answer the question that we had, which is, what do you do with that gun other than it's not a hunting rifle, it's not a handgun, what do you do with a machine gun? And so it was a real question we had, and we went looking for a gun store owner, and I won't tell you too much about who we found, because narrative suspense... And so we started with this question, can you tell me about your store? Hello, and I know why you're calling. Hey, is this John? Yeah. Hey, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Okay, bye. John, can you tell me about your store? Maybe just describe it to me. You're talking about the gun shop? Yeah. Uh, We already had a number of shops in the area, so I decided... I didn't want to sell the same thing they did, which was all hunting equipment. And so I started out by selling tactical equipment, like uh, AR-15s or long-range rifles. I mean, I sold rifles that uh, could shoot a mile. I sold $10,000 rifles. I sold $5,000 guns. I sold the upper end. So we have met John Markell, the owner of this store, and he has very quickly established himself as a person who the day after the Las Vegas shooting, you can imagine why you might be hearing from this person, but we don't know where we're going, right? So it's feeling relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that, that I'm hearing from this person for a reason, but I don't know what that reason is yet. So the, the, the conversation continues. If you could sell anything, why is it a gun? Like, why'd you open a gun store? Um, I'm sure that was an interesting answer from John. Um, you know, he, we get him to describe the store. What types of guns do you sell? How many guns do you sell in a year? What's your favorite gun? And then we get to this question that we were actually 
where our interest came from, which is why would anyone buy that type of gun? So here's a question that I've been wondering about, knowing that I would be talking to you. I feel like I understand why people buy handguns. And I also understand why people buy hunting rifles to hunt. But I feel like I don't understand as well why people buy these kind of higher powered guns. And it sounds like you carry some of those weapons. Well, I carry a lot of them. But you can't even hunt with but why, them. But why do people buy that sort of gun? Oh, just for fun. That's all. Just for What do you mean? Do you have any idea how much fun it is to take one out at 100, 200, 300, 400, even 500 yards and shoot with that? So we actually all found that very unexpected and interesting. Like, the, the true answer was because it's fun. And that is from the mouth of a man who knows. So the conversation continues. Um, so when someone buys a gun like that, what do you imagine they're doing with it? Having fun with it? Um, and this is where I think something sort of interesting happens is we say, what's the process of selling a gun like that to someone? But then we turn it, and it becomes about Michael. So if I wanted to buy a gun, can I buy that machine gun from you? And I think it's a very small move to say to, to make that personal, but it does a lot when, with the sort of like building of a human relationship and, and telling a story where there are characters involved is like, let's, let's, let's make this less of a conversation in which this guy feels like he's, he's talking to a journalist and more of a conversation in which two people are just talking. John, what's the process? Well, if, if I walk into a store, me, Michael Barbaroff, yeah. and I want to buy an assault rifle or something like a machine gun, what happens? First thing that happens is we size the person up. You have any idea? You have any idea how much how many sales we've lost just because we refused to sell the gun? Hmm. Something didn't smell right. We get lots of mad people. I mean, I, I, we've seen some really squirrely people. We just felt so. We just didn't feel right selling it, and with nothing other than a feeling to go on. So here we've learned that that a gun store owner actually uses their own judgment in selling guns. That's news to me. Things are unfolding more or less as we hoped they would. The, the script is kind of working. The questions are sort of working. But then, inevitably, with real people, surprises come. And how often does that happen? Oh, uh, weekly? Monthly? Hmm. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it, it literally probably cost me $20,000 of what we turned down. But So say, and, say I pass the, the, the kind of John... Visual okay, test. They're going, to, they're going to do two background checks. One's federal and one's state. Okay, we don't move until we hear them say yes. And does that take some time? Uh, for two-thirds, it doesn't. For a third, it does. So it sounds like I could walk out with an assault rifle on the same day. You can. In 15 minutes. Because it's not the weapon. The weapon's a tool. No different than an axe. I mean, it's how you use it. I sold a gun. I, I mean, I wish I hadn't. The woman committed suicide, and she did it in our parking lot because she said she didn't want her children to find her. I just want to pause, and, and this was such a such a shattering moment in the interview. He's just told us, he's just volunteered to us that he sold a, a gun to a woman who walked out into the parking lot and, and killed herself in the parking lot. And I think one of the discoveries that certainly I've had as a, as a print journalist about this idea of narrative news is that th- this, this kind of pacing and unfolding of an interview where there's, a, there's suspense and there's slowness and there's a journey is not only, is not only an incredibly powerful way to discover uh, 
news, it's also just the most respectful possible way to talk to a person. And I think that you see this interview, as you hear this interview, you're hearing us showing him a lot of respect for his career and his, his craft. He thinks of it as a craft, his judgment. And no matter what you feel about guns and gun control and a gun store owner, he is deeply human. And he feels human. Otherwise, why would he be telling the New York Times about a moment that seems to very much question the, the very thing he does? It was on his mind. He, was, he wasn't feeling like you feel when the first question you get, which is very much what print journalism tradition is, John Markell, hi, I'm Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Uh, I'm calling you because I want to know what it's like to sell guns that are used in mass shootings. I mean, the whole dynamic changes with this, and it's been very, very eye-opening for me. But as it turns out, he, he knows what it's like to sell a gun to someone in a mass shooting. And that is information that we have deliberately chosen to withhold. And so we're about seven minutes into a conversation with him before Michael asks him, so tell me about the gun that you sold on March 13, 2007, which is the, the gun that was used in the Virginia Tech shooting. When did you first hear about the, the shooting, the Virginia Tech shooting? Well, it happened on a Monday. Well, you got to understand, I was listening... For the whole, from the whole thing, the news from the very beginning, one person was killed in the dorm. Then there's two. Then a long, long gap. Or it seemed like it was a long gap. And then we hear there's 10. There's 15. It just kept going up and up. And I kept thinking, my God, it's got to stop. Hmm. And I had to deal with ATF immediately, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. We didn't know it was us until ATF told us it was. And the only reason they knew is because he kept the receipt in his backpack. Hmm. So this is a man who who experienced the Virginia Tech shooting just like the rest of us, who was horrified by the numbers that are stacking up and then discovers, you know, hours later that that that, that gun came from his store. But we have we have taken a long time to get there. And um, and Michael and 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 and. John grapple with what that felt like and how he made sense of that for for several more minutes. Um, Michael then asks him what happened to sales at his shop, and there's another unexpected moment where he says, um, basically, they went through the roof, and this has a really powerful echo back to segment one, where we're hearing basically in reaction to these the, to events like these, there's a there's a there's a solidification around gun culture. There's a there's a support behind it that 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 even like takes the form of people driving from miles away to come to this man's gun store to buy guns from him instead of from the gun store nearby as a sign of solidarity with this man. So this comes as a real surprise. And then finally, we get to the final question, and I would say this is a question where we had. We were not sure what we were looking for. We were just looking for a big, like a, a th- an idea from him to go out on a thought. And we said it's been ten years since the shooting. Obviously, Las Vegas has just has just taken place with every mass shooting that's happened since. What goes through your mind? I want to ask you, John, about about the period since Virginia Tech. Every time there's a mass shooting, and there are mass shootings now many times a year in the in the United States. Let's take the examples of what happened in Orlando or what just happened in Las Vegas. I, I want to understand what goes through your mind. Anytime I, see, I hear about a shooting, same thing goes through yours. There's no difference. And I think that's a, that's a sort of open for interpretation answer, the same mm. thing that goes through your mind, there's no difference. How can that be? You sell guns. Yet the moral ambiguity of that is actually quite 
lovely, awful, lovely, but but just real. And I think I think when we 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 had this idea that we wanted that came that was also born out of the election that people when we have conversations with people let's let's not use them as props let's use them as people and let's let people figure out um, through the process of hearing their story why you're hearing their story and why 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 that person is talking in this moment and I think this is a good example of that because because. Um, uh, obviously, it, it becomes clear why we chose this particular gun store owner, but it ends up being a conversation with a person who we should get to know as a person in this moment as we're trying as a culture to make sense of these shootings. And so that ends up being our coverage, um, second day coverage after the Las Vegas shooting is the NRA story um, is segment one and the conversation with the gun store owner is segment two. And that was turned around in a day. So, you know, a conversation like that with John, we probably put as much time into crafting these questions in advance as we did to editing the, the interview afterward, which at the end of the day is a relatively straightforward two-way, right? But because of the way the thought that's been put into the questions up front, it, it, it takes us on a journey. That was an excerpt from Bringing Together Narrative and News, a session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. It was presented by Lisa Tobin and Michael Barbaro of The Daily, a podcast from The New York Times. To listen to the rest of this session, where Lisa and Michael break down the story of a hate crime in Oregon that takes a surprising turn, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Or subscribe to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, a podcast where you'll find an abundance of audio knowledge from past Third Coast conferences. Coming up after the break, bringing lost characters to life. We'll be back in just a minute. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The problem about being a beginner is that it's going to suck. But... The good thing about being a beginner is that you've got all this energy. On the Third Coast Pocket Conference, you'll learn the essential tools for making audio stories from the world's most celebrated radio producers and podcasters. So when I make a piece, I want the world I'm imagining to be so engaging that the listener wants to move there. I want to create an atmosphere that will be sustained from beginning until end. You have to find a way to get in and tell a story that's going to surprise people about something that they already know. The closer, the more intimate, the more immersed you can get in the lives of the people whose 
stories you're telling, the more powerful those narratives will be. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is where your next great story begins. Listen online at thirdcoastfestival.org or you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And that is the only way that you will get from sucking to not sucking. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're sharing some sessions from the 2017 Third Coast Conference that give a behind-the-scenes look at some of the top documentary podcasts. So I think of these as stories that use history as a decoder ring for understanding the present. In the course of her reporting, 99% Invisible producer and editor Delaney Hall has found that in order to explain current events, you have to reach into the past. In this session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference, Delaney shows us how she takes forgotten characters and lost places and brings them to life in sound. Here's The Past Isn't Past. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, This is The Past Isn't Past, a session about making historical documentaries. I work with 99% Invisible, and we're a show about architecture, design, and the built environment. But secretly, we're actually a show about history. Um, We do stories about how the built world came to be and how everyday places, objects, and ideas happened. Um, So who invented them, where they came from, how they evolved over time. So we do a lot of history. To narrow it down, I've decided to focus on a handful of historical stories that feel relevant to the current moment. Um, So these are ones that connect the past and the present in interesting ways and that reveal something about how we got here. And by here, I mean America in the late 20-teens. So I think of these stories um, as stories that use history as a decoder ring for understanding the present. Um, So I'm going to play some tape from an episode of 99PI and then excerpts from some of my recent favorite history-focused stories. Um, I think we're we're at a particularly good moment for telling stories about history. I think a lot of us are trying to understand and explain how we arrived at this time culturally and socially and politically. And a lot of producers are doing interesting work in this form. Um, This, of course, won't be and can't be comprehensive, but I'm going to take a few stories and treat them as case studies and kind of pick apart how they were reported and structured and the way they work. Um, So to start, I'm going to play the opening of a 99PI episode about this. Um, This was a radical experiment in redesigning police uniforms. And this excerpt is about three and a half minutes. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1968, the police department in Menlo Park, California, hired a new police chief. His name was Victor Sazankis. And Chief Sazankis's main goal was to reform the police department's image, which wasn't great at the time. That's our own Delaney Hall. Because this was the 1960s, and even in Menlo Park, a small city with manicured lawns and wide suburban streets, it had been a turbulent decade. 
There were big student-led anti-war demonstrations at Stanford University, which is right nearby. Joan Baez, the folk singer, created a commune called Struggle Mountain in the foothills above the city. And leaders in the African-American community were organizing protests to demand better treatment and services. The Menlo Park police had clashed with these protesters, sometimes violently. And after years and years of this, the department had a pretty rough reputation. Had a reputation for being a very tough police department, a very aggressive police department, and somewhat of a very uh, anti-race kind of a police department. That's Dominic Peloso. He was hired in 1970 by Chief Sizenkis, the guy who wanted to change this culture. He just, he's one of these type of guys that would come into a room and would just fill in the room, you know, and everybody kind of sits back and says, "Uh, I think we better listen and go along with this guy. Chief Sizankis had hired Dominic right out of the Jesuit seminary, where Dominic had been studying to be a priest. Sizankis liked hiring officers from non-traditional law enforcement backgrounds and with higher levels of education. It was just one of his strategies for reforming the department. He also let his officers grow their hair out and have beards and mustaches. He changed all the pseudo-military titles to more corporate ones. Sergeants became managers, for example, and lieutenants became directors. Officers in the department had mixed feelings about all these changes, but one was more controversial than the others. For a long time, officers in Menlo Park had worn a variation of the traditional dark blue police uniform. But Chief Sizankis thought that style was too intimidating and aggressive. So the chief came up with something totally different. It was really a nice, kind of a dark green blazer with some black thread in it. Uh, We wore pastel-colored solid shirts with a tie and slacks. Instead of a metal badge, the blazer sported an embroidered patch that sort of looked like a coat of arms. Guns and handcuffs remained hidden under the jacket. All in all, the officers looked kind of like grown-up prep school students, but with guns. They even had pocket protectors with the Menlo Park Police logo on it that would slide into the pocket of their dress shirts. It seems like the, the total effect is he was trying to demilitarize the look and attitude of the department. Yeah, I think that would be a correct uh, statement. Uh, a lot of the guys who join police departments are from the military. And because of the nature of the work, um, it, it can be very militaristic, shall we say, an organization and training and all those kinds of things. And he was trying to calm it down. But Chief Sizenkis was also messing with a tradition that would prove extremely hard to change. Because the blue military-style uniform had a history that went back more than 100 years. So just quickly some backstory on how I found this story idea, because I think it reveals something about... um, how you can discover history stories in your day-to-day reporting. So I got interested in police uniforms back in 2014 when I was working on a story about police shootings in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this was back when police brutality and police militarization were in the news a lot. And, of course, they're still in the news a lot, but Ferguson had happened not long before. Um, And I was interviewing an ex-officer who had quit the department in Albuquerque. And he just mentioned kind of offhand that he thought the APD was going to need to rebrand as part of restoring trust with the community. Like they needed to get new uniforms and new cars and like a whole new look. 
to show the community um, we're making changes. And I found that really interesting and strange, and I'd never really thought about rebranding in the context of police departments. Um, But it seemed connected to these conversations that people were having about the militarized appearance of police and, you know, how they were rolling through communities with tanks and riot gear and what that appearance symbolized about their relationship to the community. So when I started working at 99PI a couple years later, where we do stories about design, I was like, okay, police uniforms are designed, and maybe there's something to the rebranding story. It seemed like kind of an interesting sideways way into the issue of police community relations. So my first tip is just to pay attention to tangents and asides in your day-to-day reporting and reading. I found that often interviewees um, will mention something offhand or there will be a brief aside in an article or even a footnote um, that will suggest an idea for historical investigation. And just quickly, as another example of that, we, we also did a story in the past year about the history of the modern sanctuary movement, which started in Tucson in the 1980s. And that idea came from the fact that I was reading all of these contemporary news articles about sanctuary cities and these conflicts around the idea of sanctuary. And a lot of those news reports had like one sentence that would say, uh, the sanctuary movement, which started in Arizona in the 1980s, and then wouldn't go any further. Um, And so looking into it, it turns out there's a a ton of really interesting history there that... um, we explored in two episodes, and it really sets the context for what's happening today. Um, so, so follow those tangents that daily news reporters cannot follow, they don't have time, and build whole stories around them. Um, so back to Menlo Park. I started Googling around, and I found uh, a web article about the history of police uniforms, and it had this very, very brief mention of the experiment carried out by the Menlo Park Police Department, where they put the officers in these weird blazers. Um, and it was part of this overall general strategy of de-escalation. So I got in touch with the department, and through them I found Dominic. Um, and he had served as the second in command to Vic Sizenkis, the reformer. And he was like a real cop. He said stuff like this. It wasn't like we slacked off and became, you know, like, oh, mercy and forgiveness and love and peace and all that kind of stuff. You know, oh, no. <laughs> so he was like a, you know, he was a real police officer, but he had also been one of the officers who was open to some of the reforms that Sizenkis was proposing. And he became a great narrator of the Menlo Park story. Um, the Menlo Park anecdote became the through line of our episode, and we wove it together with a much bigger history of the American police system and its various attempts at professionalization and reform over the decades, because it turns out that for for as long as there have been police in America, they have had conflicts with the communities that they're part of, and they have had reform movements, sort of waves of attempts at having better relationships. So 
In a lot of our stories, we balance these big picture voices with first person voices. And in, in this story, the first person voice is Dominic, who has this direct lived experience with the story. Um, the big picture voices are, are like historians and experts who can provide context and scope and analysis. Um, and so not always, but many of our episodes weave back and forth between these two layers. Um, and it's, it's sort of like the difference between a close-up and a wide angle in film. So at this point in the story, we take a break from Menlo Park and we go all the way back to colonial America when these proto-police groups were first starting up. And we cover the beginning of modern policing and we cover the Wickersham Report in 1929, which was really the first big study or expose of police abuses. And then from that report, there was this whole movement to professionalize the police. And so I'll play just a little bit um, from that section. This report, the Wickersham Report, really was sort of this turning point, we need to do something different in policing. And I think that's what led into this professional era. This new professional era, which continued up into the 1960s and 70s, was characterized by an emphasis on policing as a skilled profession. This old educational film called Your Police lays it out. Police departments use modern signs to protect you, such as teletype, photography, two-way radio, expert firearms training as standardized by the FBI National Academy, accident prevention installations, and other... Now police were trained to use modern tools and technology. And one of the leading voices for this new method was a guy named August Vollmer. He'd been the first police chief of Berkeley, California, and he helped to write the Wickersham Report. Vollmer got his officers to use motorcycles and patrol cars instead of just walking around. That way they could cover bigger areas more efficiently. He was also one of the first chiefs in the U.S. to insist his department use fingerprinting and blood and fiber analysis to help solve crimes. And under his influence, California became a hotbed of police reform from the 1920s through the 1960s, leading, of course, to stuff like Chief Sazankis' blazer uniform experiment in Menlo Park. For a few years, it seemed like Chief Sazankis' So from that history, we loop back to Menlo Park and we wrap up what happened with Sazankis, um, which is actually that half of his department left and there was a lot of disenchantment with what he was trying to do. And then we move forward in history from there. So this brings me to another tip, which is just to play with structure. Um, in general, I do believe that chronology is your friend when you're telling history stories. I think it makes a lot of sense. But you can play with structure even when you're proceeding roughly chronologically. So this is a thing that I stole from Rob Rosenthal. Um, thank you, Rob. He, he wrote uh, an article for Transom, which is an incredible resource if anyone doesn't know about it. And he noticed something smart about the structure of our show and a lot of history shows. <clears throat> So if you look at this image, um, those dots are just all the things that happen in the story chronologically. So on the left, it's like colonial America, and then the 1820s, and then the Wickersham Report, and then somewhere in the middle, it's Menlo Park. 
and then you move on to the more contemporary stuff. But instead of just telling the story completely chronologically, we do this. This is the E. So you start with a compelling anecdote that comes in the middle of the story, something that grabs the listener. In this case, it's the Menlo Park story. And then we circle back into the past to like provide the context that leads to that opening anecdote. And then you move, kind of mention that anecdote and then move beyond it. Um, so how do we bring those past sections to life? Um, at 99PI, a big thing that we lean on is archival tape. And the archival tape from the last clip I played was um, from a film called Your Police that's from this great archive called the Prelinger Archive. And it's an online Creative Commons archive of old educational films, industrial films, home movies. It has all kinds of amazing stuff. Um, which brings me to this tip. Archives and archivists are your friends. And there is so much archival material out there in the world that you can draw on. I put out a call on Facebook and Twitter um, asking people for suggestions for good archives and like quickly realized there could be a whole session on, on just archives. So, um, so just to conclude the Menlo Park piece, we find out what happened to Sazankas, and then we move forward beyond Sazankas to Nixon and the war on drugs and the war on crime and the war on terror and the growing militarization of the police, which brings us up to the present. Um, so this clip starts with someone from the Minneapolis Police Department talking, and they pretty recently decided to do a uniform redesign. So it's just a couple minutes. We are police. We are not military. We don't train with the military. We're not associated with the military. We're the Minneapolis Police Department, and uh, we want to be reflective of our own community and our own image. What's not totally clear is if the color of the uniform actually matters. I mean, they can wear pink, but if they're toting guns and rubber bullets and mace um, and tasers and everything else. This is Candace Montgomery. She's an activist with Black Lives Matter, and she's taken part in protests in Minneapolis against the police. A color is not going to change that dynamic. An entire overhaul of the policing system is going to change that dynamic in people's responses. Of course, the problems police are facing today can't be solved by uniform change alone. But a change in uniform can be an important symbol, a way for police departments to signal to their communities that they want to have a better relationship. In the case of Chief Sazankas in Menlo Park, the uniform experiment did help lead to bigger changes. Requiring officers to wear blazers meant a certain kind of officer was drawn to the police department, the kind who was willing to get on board with the more significant Significant reforms that Sazankas wanted to make. And even though the department eventually abandoned the Blazers, many of the other changes stuck. Here's former Menlo Park Assistant Chief Dominic Peloso again. Vic was definitely ahead of his time. And, you know, as with most people who are ahead of their time, uh, you, you don't have a crowd of people that all kind of stand up and cheer for you. But it would be very interesting because within, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, Almost every police department in our area, even though they didn't change the uniform or the titles or the organizational chart, were taking on that real big kind of community policing uh, thing. 
they went ahead and did it because that was the t- signs of the times. So in the end, we told this big sweep of police reform history, but threaded around a single story um, that connected to sort of the bigger themes and ideas that were at play. Um, And we get to how all of that connects to the current day at the end, but framed through the lens of history. Um, So just look for the small story that helps you tell the big story. It could be one family or one person or one moment that helps hold all of the history together. Okay, so there's a lot of material to be mined when it comes to competing narratives about history and the gap between what your average American sort of thinks our history is versus the complexity of the reality of what our history is. And I think that's at the heart of other podcasts that are that are being produced now, um, like Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell and Uncivil, um, which sort of covers untold stories of the Civil War. Um, so... Stories about Civil War monuments have been in the news all summer. Just a quick clip from Uncivil. But the monument that bothers us the most doesn't feature Robert E. Lee or the Confederate flag. In fact, it features Abraham Lincoln. That's about how high is that, maybe 20 feet? Yeah, probably about 20 feet. Lincoln is kind of looking down on us. His hand is extended. Got this black man on his knees in front of Lincoln. Maybe trying to stand up or rise. Still got a shackle around his arm. It looks like maybe the, the, the enslaved person might be shining Lincoln's shoes or something. The statue is called the Freedman's Memorial. It's in Washington, D.C., put up in 1876. It's so much in the statue. I mean, the, the man, the, the freed man who may be rising, he's got a broken chain on his arm, but he's dressed like a, he's only got like a, a loincloth. He, otherwise, he is, he is absolutely naked. Meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln is in a full 19th century dress coat, pants, boots. Lincoln is still standing over the dude. And in a way, this doesn't really give any credit or represent the agency of black people in freeing themselves. Black people were trying to free themselves, rebel from slavery before the Civil War even started. I hate this statue. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it, too. So, you know, the statue is sort of the mainstream history of the Civil War, and their point is just that there's a lot of untold stories in history, and sometimes they're untold because they cut against the grain of sort of our mainstream conception of ourselves. So just pay attention to the gaps in history. Pay attention to new information that surprises you or complicates your understanding of of what happened in the past. So um, I think... More often, stories happen through networks of characters and in stages over time. A beautiful example of this is a story that aired on More Perfect. It was called The Gun Show. It's about the Second Amendment. Um, And it explores America's weird relationship with guns. It's told in three chapters, and it was produced by Sean Romsverm. So Sean starts with the actual words of the Second Amendment. Um, So I'm just going to play those words. I think we should start with one of the most confusing sentences in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. Not we the people. Uh, Not that one. No, I got a different one. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So they go on to talk about how there's this ambiguity inherent in the language of the Second Amendment. And it's really, are gun rights about individuals or are gun rights about militias? And the reality is that for a long time in our history, people basically ignored the Second Amendment. It was kind of dusty. Courts did not argue about it very much. Um, People thought about guns. States regulated guns. But there just wasn't argument. Um, And then that changed. (laughs) And the uh, story is really about why and how that changed. So here's another clip. Because there was this window of time where... All of this changes. The the script just flips. There's 200 years of everything being chill, and then suddenly you get this. I want to say those fighting words from my cold, dead hands. Hello, Patriots! So basically, in just a flash, the Second Amendment goes from being ignored to being you will not disarm me explosive to being radioactive and in the process we start to read the thing totally differently all of a sudden it's this hotly debated thing that's got nothing to do with that first part and everything to do with the second part if she gets to pick her judges nothing you can do folks everything to do with my personal right and me Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But And what I want to know is, how did that happen? How do we start reading the Second Amendment the way we do now? And, and what I found out is that in the modern history of the gun rights movement and, and how we read the Second Amendment can be boiled down to these three totally unrelated, disjointed-seeming, revolutionary events. So Sean then tells the story of this shift in in three chapters. And the structure of his story is more like this, where there's each of those boxes represents a distinct place and time and universe of characters, but each anecdote connects or leads to the next, and, and the connections between them are really surprising. And I won't try to summarize all three chapters, but but just look for networks of characters, too, because that's often how history changes. Thanks. That was Delaney Hall, producer at 99% Invisible, speaking at the 2017 Third Coast Conference. We're proud to note that Delaney is also a Third Coast alum and former ReSound producer. To hear the rest of this session, where Delaney looks at other history-centric podcasts like Seen on Radio, visit thirdcoastfestival.org or download our podcast, The Third Coast Pocket Conference. There you'll find sessions from all our conferences and more. Listen to Ira Glass, Jad Abumrad, The Kitchen Sisters, Brooke Gladstone, Audie Cornish, Sam Sanders, you name them, we got them. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. 
Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.